This is episode 70 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to our 2012 Annual Enrichment Conference, Mission, A Family on the Move. This is session one from Monday night. I just want to tell you a little bit about my hope uh, for what happens during our time. Your investment of these um, three days and um, everything that it's taken to uh, be here. I hope that we have this outburst of worship. I hope that when we look at the um, work that God has been doing, of Him revealing who He is, um, the good news of His gospel all over the Northwest, as that gets shown to us and as we see examples and stories, that we would have an outburst of worship that we couldn't help but uh, come in awe of a God who would make Himself known and extend life and freedom to sinners, to captives, and that uh, we would get excited about that and bow down and worship our God. That would be one thing. And second thing that I hope happens this week is that we have a um, creative collaboration that as we hear different stories of, of mission, that we would find ways of collaborating and connecting together, uh, expressing the value of relationships. Um, God left us here for a reason. It's all about relationships. So I would hope that we have this creative collaboration of things that maybe you need uh, a little holy imagination to vision what God could do in your community and in your church and in the Northwest. Um, we all have a, a viewpoint or an angle that, of which we see uh, the work that God's doing. And what we're going to try and do through a whole variety of presenters that come from different churches, different um, communities, different, uh, all different kind of backgrounds, um, as they come in, they're going to share their angle, their perspective of what God has led them to do. And I hope that that fills in your picture of what our God's like. And it uh, causes us to worship and it allows us to connect to each other. And so that's what I'm hoping for. I hope you're ready for that. Um, I hope that uh, you can see that. We're going to try and do that by, uh, like I said, giving you lots of examples. Um, starting with very close to our history and who we are and moving outward to the uttermost. And so we'll kind of develop that. But uh, the end game is that we would worship and that we, we would be connected uh, uh, to each other. So that's what I'm hoping for. I hope you're ready for that. We've uh, got people from different churches here to lead us in worship and, and some singing times and I know that some of the most beneficial things that will happen will just be the unplanned things and so we actually planned for the unplanned thing. Uh, rotating emphasis of, of theography, transformation, community, and mission and this year in 2012 all of our gathering events do have the focus of mission and so we knew we wanted to um, highlight like that. And I also had been uh, listening to some of the previous enrichment conference audio recordings that are on the website and just was looking through some things and um, I, I feel like it has been a number of years that we have been beating the drum of next generation, make disciples, plant churches, over and over and over that this has got to be the hallmark, the center piece of who we are. Uh, that we are engaged with the work that God's doing and making disciples and planting new churches, reaching new people. And we've been beating that drum. And so I'm thinking, you know what? I know the people that are coming up. They believe that. 
That's us. That's what it means to be CB Northwest and part of the covenant community. And so we thought this year, let's have a time where we are reminded of our foundation, of our history, but that primarily focuses on where we're going and what God is doing among us and how we can better partner together to do that. Let's, let's make something that would be celebratory and um, uh, link us together in a meaningful way. And so uh, tonight, we're going to lay some of the foundation. Where have we been? And define some terms. We need to define mission and just remind ourselves that what does missionally driven mean? And, and, and we're going to define that. And we're going to define the gospel, something that we want to be very clear about as a family, as the good news um, uh, bringers that we are. And so I, I, uh, we're going to lay that foundation tonight looking at what God has done, how he's led us, and then for the rest of the time is going to be looking at what he's doing and what we get to partner in moving forward. And you'll know that what we've done is we have a series, a number of presenters, and they're each going to get uh, about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, there's no trap door or anything here, but they're going to get a little bit of time and go back to back and build on this idea. And we'll begin to see what, how um, God links those things together. And so I've asked Luke Hendricks to come um, and, and, and talk to us uh, right at the beginning um, about mission. And um, he's going to develop that a little bit. Good evening. It's good to be here. It's been a little bit of a while since I've been here in this position in any form or fashion, but it's good to be with you this evening. There's probably a lot to say in relationship to just to personally where I'm at in this whole situation. Let me just say this much. Um, from a spiritual perspective, my formation really did come from uh, being involved in a very small CB church out in Prineville, Oregon. And as a, a very young, newly married, new to the whole fatherhood situation, it was a, it was a very old church that kind of uh, nurtured me in spiritual formation. I'm grateful for that. And one of the things that has been prevalent as it relates to conservative Baptists and any, anything involving the movement there has been an emphasis on this idea that, that uh, there's always been, in the vernacular of CB terms, an emphasis on soul winning. And soul winning, for uh, my mind's sake, going back now some 30 plus years, really had the idea of proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming to those that needed to hear. We've changed our terms. Things change and shift, and, and now we're heavied up on the idea of mission. And I understand that, and I understand that it takes new language for new ears. And so that soul winning, or winning in general, has kind of a weird uh, connotation to it at this point in time. So we've changed a little bit of the language, but the thought and the emphasis remains the same. This evening, what I'd like to do is maybe just give you a picture into uh, what this has been uh, as it relates to the heart of God for a very long time. And I'm going to use a rather obscure passage to perhaps illustrate this. So if you've got a Bible, I'm just going to ask you to stick a finger in 2 Kings and uh, about chapter 18. I'm not going to try and move through two chapters of scripture, but I am going to have you just stick your finger there and perhaps uh, maybe at a later time you can go back and filter through this. 
The seminal thought here is that the sense of mission is one that was born in the heart of God. And it legitimately is manifest in Christ's incarnation. Here is a God of the universe that's created everything that wants to connect with his creation and sends his son incarnate as a human being to interact with human beings. So there's probably a lot that we could do to define mission. But let me just say this much. It really is at the heart of God to try and connect with his creation. And now as uh, the image bearers of this God, we do the same thing today, trying to connect with those that he has created. I'm going to steal some information and some thoughts from others who have thought deeply on this issue. Perhaps some of you are familiar with Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament theologian, and pretty much at the end of his career. And you may not agree with everything that he has to say, but there's no uh, doubting that as an Old Testament scholar, he is perhaps uh, the most preeminent Old Testament scholar alive today. And he argues that the cultural conditions of today, that is, of a post-modernity, require that the church function as a bilingual community. It's an interesting thought. But that we would need to be conversant in two different languages. And let me just try and frame that up for you. One of the languages is our language, the language of the people of faith, the people of God. It is the Christian language, if you will. And you know it well, right? You know the terms and the words. I have a son who uh, uh, leads worship. And he was saying to me the other day, he said, you know, Dad, it's one of the most frustrating things in the world to try and write new worship music, primarily because we use the same 50 words in worship music. And it's difficult to do. And it, it feels like we need to break out of that. But I want to at least applaud and acknowledge that this language within Christianity is absolutely necessary. It is a Christian language that describes us, and we need to be conversant in both that, the traditions of the church, and then we need to be conversant in the dominant narrative of the dominant culture of our day. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Because we have not always focused on this. In fact, as conservative Baptists, we have kind of set our mind to, at least initially in our formation, set our mind to the idea that we were actually in a different position than the dominant culture. We wanted to say, uh, we're trying to conserve some aspects of the truth and we are not trying to get involved with the world, but really trying to distance ourselves, and maybe even from Christianity at some level, the liberal side of Christianity whatever that means. But we were conserving some of that truth and trying to say we're trying to hold on to that. And it, it forces us back into our own language and there's nothing wrong with our language and its traditions. We need to hold on to that. But in order for us to be image bearers to the world, we do need to be conversant in the dominant language and culture of the day. And that's a very different situation. Metaphorically, this bilingualism lies at the heart, really, of God's mission. And as I said earlier, this is the incarnation, God becoming what he loved, which was his creation, you and I.
So it's from this story in 2 Kings that I want to just try and paint this picture. I have to do this very fast, so we can't just kind of work through the verses. But if you're familiar with the story at all, um, Assyria is marching through Israel, a split kingdom, north and south. They've already conquered all of the north. They've taken down Samaria, the capital, and they have uh, walked through every known nation then on earth. And they are knocking on the door of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a pretty wicked scene. They have gathered around the city, around uh, Jerusalem. And the wall around the city is the only thing that now stands between the Jews, the people of God, and the culture that seems destined to overwhelm them. It's a crazy picture. And Hezekiah is on the throne at this point, and it's a pretty dire situation. What to do? The Assyrian negotiator comes close up to the city. And he's, and he's, before he even gets to the wall, announces that, hey, we have some news and some information for the people of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah sends out a team to meet them. And without going into great deal, they meet there, and the Assyrians are basically saying, hey, you're going down, and your God isn't going to be able to help you, and we're going to take you out completely. It gets very graphic, in fact. Very graphic in the language and what's going to happen. So much so that the Assyrians say, hey, listen, you know what's going to happen? In three days, here's what's going to happen. Your people, the people of God in this city, are going to be eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. Because we're going to cut you off completely and we are going to overwhelm you. And if you don't believe it, just look at the rest of the kingdoms that we've walked through already. And no one can deny us. It's a pretty harrowing situation. Interesting, they're away from the wall, and the group that Hezekiah sends out, they're cognizant of that, and they say, hey, keep speaking to us in Aramaic. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, because we don't want the guys on the wall or anybody close to the wall to hear what you're saying. Then, of course, what do the Assyrians say to that? Yeah, they just want to ride right up to the wall and declare all of this in front of all the Jewish people. And to throw down hard and to say, you should be afraid, you should be very afraid. Well, the conversations that are occurring are two different conversations. There's a conversation behind the wall that is occurring with the Jewish people, the people of God. And it's very fascinating to go back and read chapters 18, 19, and 20 and to listen to the whole of the conversation. But the conversation behind the wall is in Hebrew, the language of the people of God. And they speak very openly there, and they grieve openly. And they also recount the stories of their God, the stories of God's faithfulness, remembering that their salvation is in God or Yahweh's hands, and speaking that back and forth to each other. Behind the wall, the people of Judah remember who they are. Yahweh promised to save them and make them a blessing to all the nations. And they recount those stories under Hezekiah's leadership. There is a very different conversation occurring at the wall. I'll just remind us all that this conversation behind the wall is very necessary. Any community that wants to sustain itself for any length of time, must have space behind the wall 
to tell its own narrative and imagine its own future in relationship to that narrative. That's crucial. And I think as conservative Baptists, the, what I know, what I've been privy to, we're pretty good with that story. The conversation behind the wall are conversations that are decisive, but they are decisive for the conversation on the wall, where the dominant culture is meeting the very culture and the people of God. So this really now becomes uh, an issue of worldview. That's what this sense of mission becomes. Remembering God's faithfulness, Judah's leaders enter the on-the-wall conversation with different assumptions about the world than those of the empire. The dominant culture would say, there isn't a God, or certainly your God is not the most powerful, and you have no future, and we'll decide what your future is. I want you to think of that in modern terms. Just let your imagination go wild here for a second. What does that look like? This conversation at the wall has a very different worldview than the one going on behind the wall. But if you're steeped in your own story and your own narrative with its own assumptions about the, what, the, what the future holds, then it's a very different conversation on the wall. People are solid, foundationally sound, they're confident and secure. And they're not afraid of what's coming at them. And this allows them to negotiate on the wall using a language of the dominant culture. They're emboldened by an alternative vision of what the future holds. So really, taking part in both conversations is what we want our people to do. We want them to be steeped in the traditions of the church and our God and the faithfulness and everything that goes along with that. But we want them to be confident, to meet the dominant culture at the wall, not to shrink back, not to pull away and say, we just have to create it higher and bigger and thicker. The world cannot penetrate. And quite frankly, the Christian community and perhaps the conservative evangelical community has been hard at work at that, trying to wall out culture trying to say there's, there's no way for us to carry on a conversation because it's just way too dominant. So we'll shrink back and just build our walls higher. And yet the God of the universe has not decreed that. In fact, he's shown in his son the exact opposite, that he would send his son and he would enter into our world, would actually tent with us, tabernacle with us in the dirt, and all the messiness and all that is the dominant culture's ways. That's what God himself decided to do. And the church must follow Christ. And Christ has given that example. But I'll go you one step further. It's not just an example we follow, but we follow an absolute finished work of Jesus Christ. And if our people don't understand that, then security is difficult. It's hard to have a conversation at the wall. It's hard to, to uh, engage that dominant culture if we're not absolutely secure in our future. So that's why that conversation and different language needs to occur. 
But we also need to say and prep our people for what the conversation is in the language of the culture of today. What is that language? What does it look like? God calls us to converse fluently. And I'm of the mindset now, and I would say this to you very boldly, that for us, this is crucial for the people of faith. This is crucial for our very formation as followers of Christ. It must result in a bilingual consciousness. Otherwise, I do not think we're being formed truly as Christians. So God calls us to converse fluently from behind the wall, using all of our distinctive language, perception, and assumptions. Not taking anything away from that. But we also have to take part in a conversation at the wall with the dominant culture, which requires a competence in the language, perceptions, and assumptions of the broader culture. We have to have that competence. We can't hide. We have to engage. We have to know what their language is. What are their hurts? What are their concerns? What do they have hang-ups with? How could we speak in such a way that they will be able to hear? Not backing up. The controlling conversation is ours. It's the one behind the wall. And if we lose that, if we lose our language, then we're going to concede to the dominant culture. And the church will always be in a role to critique culture. Always. The idea here, though, is that we have truth and an understanding from God himself. We don't have to bang the drum and tell everybody how false they are initially, but to engage them in their language, to reach a place of understanding at that level. A place where we can actually have a conversation. If ours is not secure, then the empire will prevail. So, modern day Assyrians. What are the modern day Assyrians for us? What do they look like? What does the dominant culture look like? Do you have any ideas? You can even shout them out. What is the dominant language of today? What you see on TV? It's all about marketing? Yeah. Could very well be. It could be the media. Could be caricatures of Christianity. It could be those that are using culture to force a new way. I have a son that spent a week at Sundance, the film festival in Park City. And he came away just absolutely blown away by being involved. He was there with another church buddy planting a church in Salt Lake City, and they're kind of running at this thing together, and came to the understanding that this is where popular culture gets formed at Sundance. This is where all of the shape of culture starts for the year. And what's going to be in and out, and what, are the, what the conversation is going to be. We have to be conversant in that, and understand who's doing the shaping. Then, how do we engage the conversation with the dominant culture, with the empire? What do we do? Here's the tough part. Now I have to speak to you anecdotally. I, I left full-time service, service with uh, Northwest CB in 2008. I'd already been on staff at Imago Day community for about a year and a half in a part-time position. And in 2008, went full-time. So now, 
to, to a great degree, I'm wholesale slotted back into the local church. It's an urban church. It's in Portland. Is everybody looking at me? Do I look like a Portlander to you? Yeah, <laughs> you think so? That's interesting. <laughs> I have never felt like I looked like one. And I've never felt like I've talked like someone from Portland. Now some of you are going, yes you do. Yes you do, you sound like that. I understand that, but you just need to see it from my perspective. It was very different. And Imago Day was a young church when I started there, 2001. My wife and I would walk in and say, man, we're the oldest people here. And I think we're still pretty close to being the oldest people there. It's kind of crazy. I don't look and feel that way, but I've been completely immersed in the local church. And now my stories come from a local church physician. And I told Jerry, I said, what? what? I can't tell stories from LeGrand, and I can't tell stories from Prineville or Roseburg or Seaside. I can tell them from Portland. He said, that's okay, Luke. We'll give you grace. I said, thank you. So what does it mean to engage? Three simple things that Imago has tried to identify and say, here is how we engage. The first one is simply to say, we will be a church that makes disciples. Well, that's really novel, isn't it? Really novel, great terminology. We're being just so up to date, make disciples. What does that mean? Three things that we've tried to identify. We would do everything we could to cause the people that are interested at all to embrace what Christ has accomplished for them. Number one. Secondly, that we would take those people and show them that this embracing of what Christ has accomplished is worthy of reordering your entire world around the gospel. Not to have any separation or segregation, but reorder your whole world around that gospel. So this first part is embracing the narrative. Embracing our language. The second part is understanding that there's no segregation. No part of your life is exempt from the gospel. Thirdly, as it relates to making disciples, we would ask them to steward their lives for the glory of God. Basically saying you've been gifted and you need to give that away. That's why God gave you the gift. So, really simple. Believe, respond, and display. That's what we defined as a disciple. Let me move really quickly. The second emphasis was to serve the world. Serve the world. The third was to plant churches. So Imago's committed to making disciples, serving the world, and planting churches. Here's a brief little picture of what it looks like to serve the world. Because this is where we're going to find evangelism and all kinds of other words in our language that you know really well. But here's what I need you to know. We're trying to say to our people, the first thing you do in serving the world is be hospitable. Do you know what that means? Invite someone over to dinner. That's what that means. In your neighborhood. Invite your neighbors to your table. It's the most missional thing you can do. For before you can know the language of the culture, you're going to have to listen to it. You're going to have to hear what your neighbors are saying and where they live. And it starts at your table. You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. I'm talking about your own kitchen table. That's where mission starts. 
invite somebody over to dinner. It could be somebody even inside the faith. That's okay. Somebody at your church. I learned hospitality from a church that knew how to throw potlucks. Serious potlucks. They were awesome. I relished those days. It's crazy. It starts at your table. It started with the table for Jesus. That's where he started it, at a table. Do justice. It's the second thing. Do justice. Comes right out of Micah. What is, what is it for you, man? What do you need to do? Well, you're to do justice. What's that look like? Well, here's the deal. Your own people know what's best when it comes to justice. They do. Okay, so let me talk as a pastor to pastors. We don't trust them. It's the bottom line. We don't trust that they know how to do justice. So we'll come up with a plan. At Imago, we're holding on to this one tightly. It's hard. You've got to fight it off with the big stick. Got lots of staff, and staff's got lots of ideas and how to reach the people and how to do justice. And to the staff, I will say on a weekly basis, none of your ideas. We will not use your ideas. Zip your mouth. What do the people say? Where will they engage the culture? What will they do? And it's crazy what they come up with. Oh, they got plans for homelessness. Medical clinics watched a mother, seven months pregnant, nine months pregnant, delivering a baby, launch a medical clinic at Imago Day. Just a mom. We have doctors. We have lots of doctors at the church and RNs and all that. This was a mom who was pregnant. Crazy. Abby Haskins is singing her praises because she launched a clinic for indigenous people around the church to have medical care, entering the conversation on the wall. And she garnered and gathered all kinds of doctors and nurses, and they give one Saturday a month to serve. Who knows where it's going to go? Sex trafficking. Just a little girl in Amago who said, I work for the Sexual Assault Resource Center. It's not faith-based, it's community-based, but we're trying to help those that are involved in this whole awful human trafficking condition. I would like for, for my church to be involved. Can you help? Yes, we can. How about foster care? Just a couple that stepped up and said, uh, we'd like to offer a night out for those people that are taking in foster kids. They can just bring them to the church, we'll watch them for a night, and they can just go out for a night. Think that's not missional? Think the state of Oregon isn't interested in that? It's crazy. We weren't the first to do that. They've been doing it in Salem for a while. Churches. Been organized. Been doing it. It's happening now. Because people are starting to do justice. To serve the orphans and the widows. Well, you know, those biblical terms, the language that we know. Just putting it out there into the dominant culture. It's the foster care system. Ministry to prostitutes on 82nd Avenue. Just a meal in a warm place. Bicyclists. In Portland. You've been to Portland recently? Yeah, lots of them. I ride a bike. 
It's great. Had somebody step up and say, I'd like to form a group? We'd like to write a paper from a Christian perspective on bicycles in Portland. You think, oh, that's really stupid. Who cares? It's crazy. It's a war zone there between drivers of cars and bicyclists. You'd think it wouldn't be, but it is. Music and art and a third space. We have an art gallery downtown. We have to pay money to rent the building, the space. It's a loft. Some would say, oh, that's unbelievably extravagant. The curator happens to be a guy who teaches at PNCA, an art college there in Portland. He wanted to create a space for artists of the city and Christian artists to meet and for their art to mingle and for a conversation to begin. It's there. Been operating for a couple of years. Ministry to addicts and this whole idea of just kind of a mission retool for overseas missions. Could go on and on. To do justice. To show mercy. This is one where I had to go to school. Lead pastor Rick McKinley had an idea that when Imago got started, it went after a grassroots kind of justice from the bottom up. And he said, it's not enough. We've got to go from the top down. And I'm like, I don't want to mess around with the top. I'm just happy to work with our people and work from the bottom up. And he said, no, look, we've got to go from the top down. You've got to think bigger. Could you show mercy to a whole city? And I don't have enough time to explain to you. But it's happened Gifting the city with dollars collected from multiple churches, taking it to the mayor of Portland and saying, you do what you want with this money, it's from the Christian community in Portland. And we believe in the city and we want the city to prosper. What do you need done? First openly gay mayor in Portland, in a major city in the U.S., receiving a check from the pastors of Portland. For $125,000. And he doesn't know what to do. Every news organization in the whole of Portland is there. All the TV cameras, newspapers, everybody's there to watch him receive this check. He's new to the office of mayor and he's embroiled in a scandal. And he doesn't know what to say. And he can't really believe that pastors have embraced him. And are giving him this check. You know what's crazy? It's crazy. Not one news organization presented the story. Mum's the word. We're not telling this story. Is that crazy? Made me mad. But you have to think bigger. You have to think about a city, a whole city, and trying to love a community. So you show mercy and proclaim the gospel. A few years ago, Rick said, it's real simple. We're going to put buckets up front. You come up when you take communion and put a dollar in the bucket. We'll take the dollar put them all together, and weekly, we'll go give this to someone outside of our church community. And we're just going to see how much change God can bring with a dollar. We call it change for a dollar. I think Rick stole it from somebody. It's okay, though. Right? It's a good idea. And our people, here's what our people have to do. They have to surface where the money goes on a weekly basis. They've got to submit and say, I know a need. But here's the deal. When they surface the need, they're the ones that have to take the money back and tell the story. They have to proclaim who their God is and who is motivating them. And then they have to stand up in front of the congregation and tell the story. And they're shaken, right? Like I went and it was my neighbor and they needed help and I didn't know what to do and we had this money and we could help them do this and, and they need to tell their story of God, how God's transformed their lives. 
And now how this community, who doesn't even know this person, wants to love them. Proclaim the gospel. And I'm way out of time. Jer, sorry. You're, you're in big trouble with preachers. I am so sorry, bro. Uh, let me fi finish with this. Plant churches, okay? This is us. This is what we've committed to. But here's the bottom line. I have sons. They're busy planting a church. They don't do church the way I would do church. Heck, Rick doesn't do church the way I would do church. Let's just be honest. I got a particular way or thought. But here's the deal. The language that we share is the same. And the commitment is the same. And we have to be able to release it to the next generation. And empower them immediately. And I've watched that over and over at Imago Day community. Give this thing away. Give it away. The people know where the justice needs to be done. They know how to show mercy. Empower them and watch as the leaders pop. As they pop, equip them. Train them, send them. Plant the churches that God wants in communities. Because the only conversation worthy of having is the one around Jesus Christ. That's the only conversation worth having. And it's got to be said in a language that the people will hear. So we're going to have to engage the dominant culture. I pray that that's what our future will be. Grateful for the opportunity to be here and hopefully to encourage you. Thanks. Uh, conversation behind the wall is about the gospel. And Royce is going to come and, and uh, tell us the gospel so we can uh, be squared away on what that good news is. Royce. A number of years ago, Time Magazine ran an article called Those Mainline Blues, where they documented the decline of the mainline, mainline Protestant denominations. And the conclusion of the article was both insightful and alarming. The author of the article concluded with these words, not only are traditional denominations failing to get their message across, they are increasingly unsure of just what that message is. Let me just repeat that for you. Not only are traditional denominations failing to get their message across, they are increasingly unsure of just what that message is. Although these churches were well-intentioned, they had not only become ineffective in their mission, they had, to a much greater detriment, become unclear with what their actual message was to the culture around them. These denominations, once large and influential, had drifted away from the essential elements of Christianity that biblically made them distinctively Christian, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would be wise to learn from these, uh, their mistakes. Uh, we must be alert to the deceptive perils of the pull to drift away, the subtle pull to drift away from the gospel, away from gospel truth, away from even God himself. We always drift away. We don't drift to the gospel, or to gospel truth, or to God himself. It's always the pull to move away. And we all, as Christians, whether in churches and especially as leaders, uh, must be on our guard against the drift, the drift of both mission drift and particularly message drift. For the next few minutes, I'm going to focus on how we can avoid the pull of message drift, uh, drifting away from the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be diligent in, to make sure that in all the ministry we do, 
in all the different facets of the ministry we do, as leaders and as churches, we do not neglect the primary message of the gospel. But in order for us to not neglect it, we need to be clear with what it is. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 these words. And this is verses 17 through 21. He writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this passage we see the combination of both ministry and message. You see this in verse 18, he says, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 19, he, entrusted, uh, uh, he is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then in verse 20, it says, we are ambassadors for Christ, which is both a ministry, something you are, and you are carrying a message as an ambassador. One of the wonders of ministry that just still boggles my mind is that God uh, reaches out and reconciles to himself prideful, rebellious sinners, and then turns around and uses those same people to reconcile other prideful, rebellious sinners to himself. I would have thought he would have come up with a better deal, but he didn't. That's the, it's not the best he could do. That's his design. And, um, and, and we need to remember that we're in the business of reconciliation. But more specifically, we're in the business of reconciling people to God. Notice that we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We are given it. It is not something we create. It's not something we invent. It's not some new visionary idea that we come up with. The ministry of reconciliation is something we are given by God. Also notice that we are entrusted with a message of reconciliation. Entrusted is a stewardship word. It's something that's of high value that is given to us. We are entrusted to care for it and to use it properly. And when we don't use it properly, when we neglect it or misuse it, we are demonstrating that we are actually untrustworthy. We can come up with all new ways to accomplish our mission, and we should work hard at coming up new ways to accomplish our mission in the cultural context in which we all find ourselves. And there's a variety of contexts represented here today. But we should never come up with a new ministry or a new message apart from the gospel of Christ. If we do, it's a sign that we are drifting away from the mission of God. In this passage, Paul tells us four things about the message of the gospel. Firstly, Paul tells us that the good news of the gospel is about the work of God. It's about the work of God. We see this repeatedly in this. Verse 18, all this is from God. And, verse, and then later, who, in the same verse, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. Verse 20, God making his appeal through us. The big picture of the gospel is that God is doing a work. 
It's not primarily about us. It's not primarily about what we do. From eternity past, God was determined to demonstrate his love and to display his glory through his reconciling prideful, rebellious people to himself. To be, to be on mission and to get the gospel message right, we must be first clear with what God is doing. He, reconciles, he reconciled us to himself. He was reconciling the world to himself. He is uh, using us and making his appeal through us to others. It is God working. If our message is more about what people should do than it is about what God is doing, then we are drifting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is about the work of God. But secondly, the good news of the gospel is about the person and work of Jesus. Look at verse 18 again. He says, all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled the world to himself. And in verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. These phrases, in Christ and through Christ, have tremendous biblical breadth and depth. Contained within them are the biblical truths of God's eternal love, the Father sending his Son into the world, the incarnation, the life and obedience of Jesus. His obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. These terms include Jesus' uh, victory over death in his resurrection. And as Paul exclaims in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Being reconciled to God... And, and through Christ and in Christ emphasizes an exclusiveness of the gospel. It emphasizes an exclusiveness of God working through Christ and to, um, to reach and reconcile people to himself. Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Peter said that uh, for salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And also, not only in those terms in Christ, are the benefits of being united to Christ. For example, back in verse 17, he just, there are many ways, many folds that we are united with Christ, many truths about that. In verse 17, he just gives one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's just one of numerous benefits of being united to Christ. If our message offers a hope apart from Jesus Christ, then we are offering a false hope. And we are drifting away from the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is about the work of God. It is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the gospel... Uh, the good news of the gospel is focused on Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Look at verse 19. He says, that is, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There is a barrier between a holy God and the rebellious, prideful people that he is reconciling to himself. And that barrier, we know, is sin. And that sin must be dealt with. That sin must have, um, there must be, requires eternal just punishment. And, and this is one of those places where we have to be really, really careful of message drift. 
This is one of those places that really how we phrase this subtly changes a whole lot of things in the gospel. And it's very deceptive that we can creep away from the true gospel. I'm going to quote John Piper to clarify. John Piper says this, quote, Man-centered humans are amazed that the God should withhold life and joy from his creatures. But a God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. It, is hor it horribly skews the meaning of the cross when contemporary prophets of self-esteem say that the cross is a witness to my infinite worth since God was willing to pay such a high price to get me. But the biblical perspective of the cross is a witness to the infinite worth of God's glory and, an infant, and a witness to the immensity of the sin of my pride. What should shock us is that we have brought such contempt on the worth of God that the very death of his son is required to vindicate that worth. The cross stands in a witness to the infinite worth of God and the infinite outrage of sin. It took the infinitely costly death of the Son of God to repair the dishonor that my pride has brought upon the glory of God. Close quote. The error, to err at this point is to reduce the amazement of the gospel and is to rob people from seeing the glory of God. And, God, and, and Paul even gets more specific. You look at verse 21. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To be reconciled to God as sinful human beings, the penalty of our sin must be satisfied. And however, we, we lack the ability on our own to do that. In fact, when we attempt to self-justify ourselves, we only make the matters worse. Jesus assumed our identity. He, his, in his sinless humanity, Jesus was a perfect sacrifice for our sin by dying as our substitute in our place. In Christ's death, God reconciled us to himself by overcoming his own requirement of just wrath be exerted towards our sin. And in Christ's death, we get two comparable things at the same time. We get generous mercy to us. Mercy is that we don't get what we do deserve. But at the same time, on the flip side of that, we also get undeserved grace. Un undeserved favor, which is grace. That means we do get what we don't deserve. We get both of those through Christ's work on the cross. In fact, at the end of verse 21, he says that. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, we, we become the righteousness of God. We receive that. We're not just justified. We're not just forgiven, which is outrageous in and of itself, generous from God. But even more so, we are in His sight righteous. And as, as the Apostle John says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called sons of God? And so we are. If our message is focused on some place other than on Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, is a sign that we are drifting away from the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is about the work of God. The good news of the gospel is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is focused on Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. And if we stopped here, we'd be saying a lot of right things, true things, biblical things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, if we stopped here, we would be, in a way, incomplete. And that's the fourth thing. To be good news, the message of the gospel must be communicated. And a call to respond given. 
We see this in verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors in Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The gospel message must be proclaimed. The gospel message must be communicated. And as Luke says, it must be communicated effectively in the vernacular of our culture. But, uh, but a crucial part of that communication is that at some point, at some point, there has to be a call to respond to that gospel message in repentance and faith. If it is, there is no call to respond, it is not completely the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the opportunity to respond in repentance and faith is one of those key reasons why it's good news in the first place. You can respond to it in repentance and faith. If our message does not include, at some point, a call to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, it is a sign that we are drifting from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this brings us back to where we started. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has entrust, is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul shares his, what I like to call his philosophy of ministry, if you will. He says these words, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In our zeal, in our creativity, in our hard work of being on mission, let us always keep front and center the message of that mission, which is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may it never be said of CB Northwest or our churches that we are failing to get the message across or that we are increasingly unsure of just what that message is. I'm working on that gospel stuff right now. Um, I'm working with three pre-Christians. Uh, one of them was just born last Friday, my uh, granddaughter. And um, we're making some progress with that love and uh, things like that. Uh, one, uh, uh, something else that happened this last Friday for me was I completed a month of grand jury duty. I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. Um, some of you were groaning. I did too. My first few days I thought there is no way I'm going to put in 30 to 35 hours a week doing this stuff when I got a 60 to 70 hour uh, week job already. The judge didn't care, alright? Um, and let me get this straight. Uh, don't come up to me afterwards and give me your formulas for how you get out of jury duty. If you do that, you don't understand grand jury. Um, trial jury is what you're thinking uh, when the, uh, the attorneys turn to you and say, do you have a good reason why you couldn't serve on this jury? And you come up with some Christian answer. That'll get you off. Grand jury, the judge doesn't even ask. You're in. And um, I was juror number three out of 175 summoned. But I learned some cool stuff. Actually enjoyed it. 
um, after a few days. We indicted 198 felons from Plaquemines County. And the first thing I learned is that for an indictment to be handed down by the grand jury, there are certain elements that have to be in place. You have to have a date of a crime. It had to be committed in Clackamas County. It had to be a felony, no misdemeanor crimes for a grand jury. And those charges had to be clearly defined. Now in the spirit of the grand jury, I think I have sufficient evidence to indict you for mission activity in the past almost 70 years. You can call it mission history if you'd like to. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on this, but I'd like to give you the highlights and present it as evidence of God's work through conservative Baptist churches. You got started, and some of you know this, you got started because of a growing concern among Baptist churches and pastors about this drift that Royce shared with us. A growing concern of liberal theology, as it was called back then. Conservatives also called, by the way, for you young guys, fundamentalists, so you could say with some degree of truth, I am a fundamentalist. Try that one, see what happens. But you held, they held to certain important doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ. And they were concerned that the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society was appointing conservatives and liberals for foreign mission work. That growing concern built to a head until on May 24, 1943, a group of 40 or 50 of these fundamentalist pastors met in Chicago at the Central YMCA auditorium and they got on their knees and prayed. There's a picture here of that group nineteen forty three. And they begin praying that God might use them with their conservative theology to form a different type of emission society, and in fact, that's exactly what happened. They had a deep passion to bring the love of God to the nations, an unswerving commitment to the truth of the scriptures, and in spite of World War II raging there in Chicago on that Monday afternoon, these conservatives questioned the propriety of sending missionaries through an agency that did not hold to their basic Christian beliefs. And there on their knees they took a step of faith. The Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society was born. Seven months later, incorporated to assist churches in sending funding and caring for missionaries. Did you get that, folks? You started as a mission organization. I mean, I could indict you right now. <laughs> That's how you got your beginning. Incorporated in 1943 and the first missionaries, Dr. and Mrs. Eric Frickenberg, 
veteran missions to India with the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society were appointed. First annual meeting was in May 22, uh, May, on May 22, 1944. About 17 missionaries were appointed, including, and I've got to say this, a little sideline, uh, Elizabeth Walton. Uh, Beth Walton was a missionary in Pakistan for many years. And there's two things I remember. We just buried her last year. Um, she was a part of First Baptist Gladstone. And uh, there's two things I was impressed with about her. One, she was a feisty nurse in Pakistan. Um, man, I mean, she represents these missionaries of these early days. Um, she also, in response to the question, Beth, why did you never get married? Said, oh dear, there was just never any time. She was engrossed in, in her ministry. But I was also impressed that though she did not grow up or live in the uh, Northwest, she moved here at her retirement because of the r relationship she had between herself and First Baptist Gladstone. They actually had named a ladies' mission society after her, and she became the president. Kind of an interesting thing. Missionaries like that began going out overseas. You guys got your start as Conservative Baptist Churches of America in 1947. But your roots, folks, were missions. That's where you got your start. May 22, 1948, you formed another organization, now called Missions Door. It was birthed for the, for the purpose of preaching the gospel and planting churches across the United States and the North American continent. And several cool ministries with this organization. Campus ministries, we've got that right here in the Northwest. Um, Oregon State, great ministry there. Um, Portland State, great ministry there to, uh, to internationals. Urban and, suburb and suburban ministries, Latino ministries, international ministries in Central America, the Caribbean, Cambodia are just some of the ministry targets of this organization. But since I know CBFMS a little better, World Venture, let me share a few, a little bit more about your missional journey through that organization. The first 10 years of CBFMS became known as the Ten Miracle Years. We began with no personnel, no funds, no fields, and yet the organization in ten years grew to 300 missionaries on four continents. And now after nearly seven decades of, of, of ministry, hundreds of thousands of people are part of the family God with at least hundreds of churches planted around the world. I just want you to listen to a few to the way it got started. Let me just I just want to give you dates and countries entered just kind of in rapid succession. 1945, we went into India and Portugal. 1946, you opened Brazil. Uh, Belgian Congo and China. 1947, Argentina, Cote d'Ivoire, Japan, Italy. 1948, the Philippines. 1952, Taiwan. 1954, Pakistan. 1956, Jordan. 1959, Sri Lanka. 1961, Uganda, 
Indonesia, and it just explodes from there. Presently, some 500 World Venture and 300 Mission Door missionaries working in well over 700 countries in the world. And you started it, folks. Some of the stories that are compelling to me are, for example, Senegal. Very little fruit in that country when it was opened. For years, the missionaries just tried and tried and tried to get a foothold for the gospel, and it wouldn't stick. Maybe a couple of the things that turned it was the conversion of a Muslim man, Adama. Oh, dramatic story. But I think one of the most significant things, in my opinion, that turned that country around were the prayer efforts of a church in Jefferson, Oregon that went in some years ago and just began praying. And that country has exploded with the gospel. Albania, what a story. What a country. In 1991, there were 10 known believers in that country. And yet, through God's... We don't even know what happened, folks. But through some incredible work, by 1998, there were a hundred churches in Albania that res responded to the Kosovo crisis. And they came from a spark of CB ministry. And now there is a solid Albanian church. CB church, they've got property. <laughs> it's there. And God is using it now because a few years ago, and you can ask First Baptist Eugene about this, they've been all over this particular story. Some Albanians from a place called Macedonia came to this church and said, would you come and help us reach our people in Macedonia? A legitimate Macedonia call. I can't tell you about the stories of hundreds of Chinese who've come to Christ through your ministry in Macau and Hong Kong and Taiwan. Many churches planted as a result. Or how about your work in the Philippines? Hey, you can talk to the Wellspring about what's going on there. Or you can talk about Calvary Baptist in uh, Baker City. Uh, there's a goal. Hey, take this for a goal, okay? Uh, the Philippines churches have a goal of 2,025 churches by 2,025. There's about 846 or so churches today. Wow. Or talk to Hinson about France. Their missionary, uh, French, French national, Nicholas and Priscilla, his wife, been working there with their church and struggling for, for years until all of a sudden, and it's true in many of the French churches, because of the multi-ethnic um, involvement with so many people coming from North Africa and other places, these churches have taken off. Most of them in the 200 range. Nicholas' churches had Nicholas's church itself had 66 people come to Christ last year. Or go to Indonesia. You've had a lot of church involvement from Conservative Baptist in Indonesia over the years. 
Listen to the stories of how this thing called discovery Bible classes for Muslims have taken hold. Very simple strategy. You just put the Word of God into the hand of a group of Muslims, give them a couple of, couple of sessions, and then walk away and see how God's Word makes an impact. People coming to Christ, Muslims actually... I don't know how that works with your theology. Maybe not bringing their own people to Christ, but believe me, they're coming. I could tell you stories of our time in Congo and the churches there. Do you realize that there are 42,000 children in CB-related schools in Congo alone? Some 33 medical facilities and piles of churches. We have no idea. Maybe 800 churches and preaching points in Congo alone. One of the things I learned when I was in Congo is that when you spoke to a church, the first thing you would say when you got up in front was, Jambo, Kanisa Yamungu. Hello, God's church. And everyone responded with, Jambo. And so I would like to simply greet you from the churches of the world as I finish my portion so that you can understand the growth of the gospel around the world through CB ministries, through churches like yours around the U.S. Twenty-three churches in China say, Hello, God's church. In the Philippines, 876 churches say, Hello, God's church. In Japan, over 80 churches say, Hello, God's church. In Indonesia, 240 churches greet you in the name of Jesus. In Taiwan, over 35 churches say, Hello, God's church. In India, more than 80 churches in Central Asia or uh, Central India greet you. In Bangladesh, a conservative Baptist partner, the Bangladesh Evangelical Church, with a new vision for church planting, planted six new churches in 2010, and those churches say, Hello, God's church. In Hong Kong, 13 churches, plus a Filipino church in Hongo, greet you in the name of Jesus. In Macau, three churches greet you in the name of Jesus. The community church of Caracas, Venezuela says, Hello, God's church. The Mustard Seed Church in the mountain city of Loja, Ecuador says, Hello, God's church. And Bard helped with that one. And our missionaries there have planted four or five new churches and they say, Hello. God's church. In northern Brazil alone, over 200 churches now sending missionaries not only to Albania and Italy but also to Mozambique say, Hello, God's church. In Austria, the churches are growing. Nine of them say, Hello, God's church. Belgium, three churches. France, ten churches. Italy, seven churches. Poland, three churches. Ireland, one church, and they're hungry to plant others. Czech Republic, one church. In Senegal, 25 churches greet you in the name of Jesus. In Mali, eight churches say hello, God's church. In Cote d'Ivoire, 
Ivory Coast, 400 churches say, hello, God's church. Democratic Republic of Congo, like I said, 800. And in Uganda, where conservative Baptist missionaries have been working with Southern Baptists and British Baptists, there are 1,900 churches that say, hello, God's church. In Kenya, 12 churches greet you in the name of Jesus. And in Rwanda, I don't know how many churches are there, but I know that in 2011, Rwandese people trained by conservative Baptists working with World Venture planted 18 new churches and they say, hello, God's church. Hey, that doesn't include Missions Door, Honduras churches, Guatemala churches, Nicaragua churches, Belize churches, Costa Rica churches, Haitian churches, Dominican Republic churches, Cambodian churches. All these churches say to you, conservative Baptists, hello, we greet you in the name of Jesus. Folks, I'm indicting you this morning, or this evening. I'm indicting you for gospel proclamation and mission involvement around the world based on the elements of prayer, pastors in covenant community, and doctrinal purity. And folks, I don't think there's a defense attorney on the planet who can get you off the hook. <laughs> That's a bit of your history. You're a missional community. You have been for nearly 70 years. And, no, I, and I know I speak for CB Northwest, Missions Door, and World Venture when we say we're looking for some repeat offenders. Thank you. One mission, one message for gospel saturation in our backyard and around the world. Uh, what next? Where are we going from here? Uh, Mark is going to come up and share just kind of what's next for us in our covenant community. Good evening. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, tonight we have... Uh, been blessed. I am so thankful. Luke, thank you for um, sharing with us. It's good to hear your voice again. And uh, uh, as old as it is, it's still good. And uh, it's good to see you. Uh, Luke has always been older than I, and uh, I take every opportunity I can to make sure people understand that. Royce, thank you for a passionate um, description of the gospel. Uh, we are incredibly thankful for that. And Doug, uh, thank you for reminding us of uh, uh, the work of the Church of Jesus Christ through conservative Baptist churches around the world. This evening as we try to bring a conclusion to this session and as we get ready to uh, go together into our um, focus meetings and as we uh, try to think together about an exercise of what would a vision for conservative Baptists look like if a, a passion for mission uh, drove us in every facet of our ministries as churches around the Northwest. As we think about 
the things that have been said tonight, there is one thing that uh, is the starting point for each of the conversations, and that is that uh, we must get the Father right. We must understand clearly who our Heavenly Father is. We must sanctify Him in our thinking. We must put Him in a place uh, that is unique to all other thoughts. Uh, for the person of Jesus Christ uh, focuses us on who our Heavenly Father is. So when you see Jesus, you've seen the, you've seen the Father. As we begin to think about the mission of our churches around uh, the world, as we uh, center on the Northwest and how we as churches uh, uh, not only want to lead people to Jesus Christ, but we want to be a people who uh, reproduce leadership in our churches. We want to be a people um, who are able to identify and train next generation uh, shepherds so that churches can be planted and that from those churches people can be sent not only into the neighborhoods around us, not only into the communities of the Northwest, not only into uh, what we understand to be the Americas, uh, but to see that sent around the world. Uh, for that to take place, we have to come to terms with the incredible love that God the Father has for the people that he sent his son to save. As we embrace the love of God, as we uh, enter into a, a, a recognition of the incredible love that God has for us, uh, we are able to begin to embrace the truths that led us to be saved. So tonight, as we think about a, a way forward, we realize that one of our most beautiful expressions of devotion to our Heavenly Father, one of those expressions that um, is incredibly beautiful is when the covenant community, God's church, the church of Jesus Christ, participates in a coordinated effort of redemption. It's one thing for your church to be engaged in the ministry of redemption, uh, to be a people who try to reach your neighborhood, uh, uh, to try to prepare sent ones and to identify fields around the world um, where you are going to send your people to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's another thing for the covenant community of churches to respond in community together with the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear the love of the Father. So tonight, what uh, we want to think about is just what is it that uh, compels us to want to move forward. So in these last few minutes, I want to try to summarize our thinking uh, in a, a word picture that comes from the book of Ezra. When we think about the prophet uh, Hezekiah and the prophet Haggai, uh, we, we learn some things about uh, the ministry that they had to Israel. Haggai comes and he speaks to Israel at a time when they are coming back to rebuild the temple. A time where they have been in exile. A time where the Babylonian captivity has taken uh, the nation of Israel out of the promised land. And it has, it has deposited them in a foreign land. And, and they have actually had to live in the dominant language of a culture that was not their own. 
And as they learned to refocus themselves on what was important, as they, in a culture that was not their own, rediscovered who their God was, in that culture that was not their own, they began to embrace their God again in a way that gave them a devotion to the Father that sent them or prepared them to be sent back into their homeland, back into Jerusalem. So a man was raised up by the name of Cyrus, Ezra tells us, and Cyrus sends a decree that allows the people of Israel to leave out of their captivity, out of uh, the Babylonian uh, world, and out of the Assyrian world, and out of the Mede-Persian world, and back into Jerusalem to build the temple. And as they labor, they have all kinds of issues that come up as you read through the book of Ezra. But eventually through the book, you begin to realize that there comes this point, there comes this moment where they have completed the rebuilding of the temple. And there as they complete the rebuilding of the temple... They go through uh, what we understand to be the feasts. And as they walk through the feasts, and at the end of the feasts, and the celebration of booths, and the celebration of trumpets, and after they have had the Day of Atonement, they have this moment of rest. And as they Sabbath together, as they rest before the Lord, they recalibrate themselves for placing the Father through the worship that takes place in the temple so that they again might become the holy nation, the nation set apart unto God for the purpose of declaring to all the nations the love of God the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an incredible history. But we cannot live on the success of our past. We have an incredible body of churches scattered throughout the Northwest. But we must become a people who again find ourselves on mission. We must again be a people who are not afraid to embrace the culture with the truth of the gospel. By taking that which we know to be true. That which we believe is going to be our eternal heritage. And with the confidence of who we are in Jesus Christ, again begin to strategize for those ways in which we can bring Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs him. How do we identify the points of redemption? Well, we must identify people that need Jesus. And we can do that by simply inviting them over for dinner. And by having a conversation at our own table and, and beginning to learn what it is about the people around me that I need to know so that I might show them the love of the Father. As we identify points of redemption, it's not just a people, but it's a culture. It's the places around us. It's the schools. It's the hospitals. It's the, it's the activity centers. It's those places where we can engage people in a way that allows them to see that we care deeply about who they are and their needs and that there is a God who loves them. 
As we think about identifying points of redemption, it should lead us to create strategies of redemption. In other words, it's, it's, it's what our ministries of reconciliation are going to look like. How is it that we as a people are going to engage in reconciling that which needs to be conciliated again with God? As we think about this whole idea of, of being on mission, our way forward becomes very simple. And that is that each one of us would again embrace what it means to lead ambassadors for Jesus Christ into our community. One of the things that's going to become necessary is just that we're going to have to understand what is God's vision for us as we go forward. Uh, what is it that we need to see that we don't see? What is it that we need to know that we don't know? And we will not find that unless we become a people who will uh, again engage God on our knees. To be a people who will ask God, God, give us a vision. Help us to see. God, allow us to see in our community that which we do not see right now. So that your, your mercy and your justice and your truth might infiltrate in ways that, um, that it's not at this present moment. As we go forward uh, throughout this week, it is our hope, it is, it is our prayer, that as you communicate with one another, as you listen to the presenters, that God will begin to uh, awaken our hearts to what would we look like as churches again coordinated in our activities of redemption? What would it look like for us again to be a people that could see visions for redemption that we have never seen before? What will it take for us to be known in our culture as the group of churches that embrace the culture with such a relevance that the truth of the gospel could not be denied. That they knew that we were Christians simply by the love of the Father that we displayed. It is our prayer that there would be a a new dawning of awareness that the systems of church that we may have found ourselves in that no longer give us the time or the energy to engage culture with the truth of the gospel would be seen and that they would be cast away so that we would have the time and the energy to take Jesus to people who need them. Simply, when was the last time you and I had the privilege of leading another person to Jesus Christ?
When was the last time your leadership in your church led another person to Jesus Christ? And they got rooted and established and built up in the faith. And they were baptized. And they became a part of a community on mission. When was the last time that the vast majority of people who go to our churches led another person to Jesus Christ? When was the, the last time that the most dominant activity in your church was the testimonies around baptism? Mission, people, Jesus. Baptists? Man, I hope so. I hope so. It has been my privilege to, to sit with the team and to, to visionize what would it look like? What would it look like? If the thousands of people that attend our churches touched our culture in ways that it's never been touched. What a day that'll be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face when was the last time we saw Jesus so clearly that other people could see him in us? We got quite a week ahead of us. Uh, I, am, I am excited to see what God's going to do as his people begin to think, to step away from our, our active church schedules and begin to dream again as his people and to see where he takes us. Amen? Let's pray. Then, Jer, if you'd come. Lord Jesus, um, wow. Are we really going to be in, able to engage the dominant culture? Are we going to understand the conversation behind the wall to such a degree that um, we are ready? to bring a relevant language into a dominant culture so that they might see the gospel, that our message might be so clear that it is void of drift, a message about the work of God, a message about the person of Jesus Christ, a message that is proclaimed so clearly that people can respond. Lord, may the incredible multiplication of churches around the world that is a part of our heritage and our history simply become the starting point for that which you would want to do for us and with us and in us and through us into the future. So Lord, we look forward to what you have for us. Uh, we're going to walk by faith 
we realize that um, we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. To the Jew first and to the Greek. For by it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So we walk by faith and we look forward to the journey that it places us upon as we take Jesus into our world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.